there is no reason to assume that your child with ADHD won't meet their goals in life, won't be happy, fulfilled adults when it comes to relationships, profession, etc. I think what's important is that if there is an issue that is getting in their way, and this is regardless of whether it's ADHD, learning, emotional, whatever it is, we try to be as aware as possible to identify things as early as possible and to figure out the best ways to address them based on empirically supported strategies. Hello to all the amazing Heart to Healing listeners. I can't believe we've already come to the end of season three. I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes. And just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community, and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun, and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset, and enjoy yourselves but I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded, which are too good to wait until the next season. So welcome to the Summer Specials. On today's Summer Special, Dr. Katia Fredrickson is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in pediatric neuropsychology. She evaluates clients ranging from preschool to university students with autism spectrum disorders, learning differences, ADHD, executive functioning difficulties, and emotional vulnerabilities and provides families with a roadmap of how to support their children. In this episode, we will be focusing on ADHD in children, how it differs in boys and girls, how schools need more understanding when it comes to children with ADHD, and how ultimately it can be a huge strength. So will you start off by telling us exactly what ADHD is? Absolutely. So ADHD refers to a classic triad of characteristics. So the three things we're looking at are difficulty focusing and sustaining attention, difficulty inhibiting impulses, and difficulty regulating one's activity level. So sort of fidgeting, difficulty sitting still, that sort of thing. There are three subtypes. So you specify when you make a diagnosis, is the person predominantly showing the more inattentive, daydreamy type symptoms? Is the person predominantly showing the more hyperactive impulsive type symptoms or all of the above, which is referred to as combined type? I have never diagnosed predominantly hyperactive impulsive. I've never seen that. So typically it's predominantly inattentive or all of the above, the combined type. Obviously, we all have moments of inattention, you know, poor impulse control, etc. So a certain number of symptoms need to be occurring and they need to be clinically significant in nature. In other words, they need to have a significant impact on the person's life. One other point that's important is that um, ADHD, you know, stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, but we know that that word deficit is misleading because we're not talking about inability to attend. We're actually talking about dysregulated attention such that people with ADHD tend to be great at focusing on tasks that they enjoy, that they find stimulating, that they're comfortable with, but they will have much, much, much more difficulty in general applying those same skills when they're confronted with things that they find boring, challenging, just that are not preferred, that they find stressful, etc. Which is why it's so often dismissed as being lazy or not being focused or not wanting to do mundane tasks, which a lot of people can be very dismissive around. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely one of the misconceptions that we hear a lot. And in your experience, have you found that there's a divide between male and female and how ADHD presents in both? Absolutely. And that has led over time to underdiagnosis in girls and women, um, which we're thankfully getting more aware of. 
So at this point in children, and so I primarily work with pediatric populations, so I can speak best to that age range. In children, boys are still diagnosed twice as often as girls, but actually studies suggest that the rates should be more even across the genders. The issue is that when the diagnostic criteria were first developed, they had a heavier emphasis on the hyperactivity and impulsivity elements, um, which are more common in boys, leading girls to be missed, and which tend to diminish with age, leading adults to be missed. And so over time, the diagnosis has evolved to include more attention to the focus aspect. And so we've become better able to identify girls, but they still are often overlooked because they're much more likely on average, not always, but much more likely on average to be the more quiet and attentive daydreamy sort who are sort of sitting in the side of the classroom looking out the window. So they're not behaving in ways that are interfering with the running of the classroom, disrupting other people, and so they're less likely to be noticed. Um, And they're more likely to be diagnosed with other sorts of things such as anxiety, which may or may not be an accurate diagnosis. So how is ADHD diagnosed? Many different professionals can diagnose ADHD. You can be seen via your primary care doctor, a psychiatrist, psychologist, neuropsychologist. Neuropsychologist is what I am, and so we add a layer of testing evaluation onto the process that um, can look at sort of co-occurring type issues. But really, the main thing you need is you need to hear what the kid is like in the real world in different sorts of environments in which they find themselves. So doctors, for example, medical doctors and psychologists as well, we give standardized questionnaires to parents, to teachers. Standardized, in other words, the questionnaires have been normed on populations of people at different ages. So you can say, well, relative to how other parents of seven-year-olds describe their child, here's how you're describing your child. And we can point out if something is clinically elevated sort of to an unusual degree. But so the main idea is you you need to see the characteristics that we already talked about in more than one environment. So it could be home and school, could be home and the testing office, could be the testing office and school. And that's important because if it's only described by one set of reporters, it may be that there's something to do with the environment that is causing the child to behave in a particular way as opposed to something unique to the child, him or herself. So say, for example, the child may be anxious at school, and when you're anxious, you often have trouble paying attention, and so that could be mistaken for ADHD. So you really need to see it in more than one setting in order to appropriately diagnose. So why do you think it is being overdiagnosed so much? Well, I don't know that it's overdiagnosed per se. It's definitely the case that the prevalence rates have increased a great deal. So I, the U.S. data, I'm not familiar with the U.K. data, but in the U.S., there's an enormous cross-sectional study that has looked at the rates of diagnosis in ADHD in children and teens. And they saw that in the late 90s, an estimate of about 6% of kids and teens had ADHD. And by the time we reached 2015, 2016, that number had risen from 6% to 10%. So clearly a significant increase in just barely a decade. Um, And so it certainly does raise the question of overdiagnosis. You know, and in some cases, as we were referring to previously, mistaken diagnosis can certainly be made. So people with depression, people with anxiety, with learning problems, with trauma, all of these people may have difficulty focusing. And as you said previously, you know, if someone isn't paying attention to the full range of the diagnostic criteria, uh, that could lead to misdiagnosis. The fact of the matter, though, is that studies are suggesting that the, the increased rate of prevalence of diagnosis has to do more with the public is just more aware of what ADHD is. 
and clinicians and you know medical professionals, healthcare professionals, etc. People are becoming more aware of the presence of ADHD in previously underdiagnosed populations. Again, females, older adults, also um, ethnic minority groups, people who are successful, smart, likable, and oh gosh, that person can't have ADHD because look how well they're doing. And um, so we're getting better at catching these things in previously underdiagnosed populations, which in my mind is what is, you know, making a strong contribution to that increase in diagnosis. It's interesting because I think also a lot of people put computers, technology, social media down to reducing attention spans which again is really impacting younger generations and particularly children today who seem to be doing everything on a tablet at school, which I can't help but think must have a, a direct implication on, on the increasing rates. I can't it. help but agree with you. <laughs> yeah, it is rather terrifying when you think about it. Also, the increase in multitasking, or I should say quote unquote multitasking, because people think that they're multitasking when really they're not. So for example, you're not really multitasking unless you're doing at least one of the activities has to be subconscious. So for example, it's multitasking to carry on a conversation with a friend while shooting baskets if you're a comfortable basketball player. It's just sort of an automatic behavior. Having a conversation uh, while taking a walk, etc. Those are multitasking where you're truly sort of doing two things simultaneously. But when you're having to do two things that involve conscious thought, so say you are a student trying to work on your homework while listening to a TV show, you, what you're really doing is switching very rapidly back and forth. And so it decreases your efficiency. It decreases your capacity to think more deeply about what you're doing because you're not actually genuinely multitasking in the way that you think that you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're such creatures at the moment of trying to do so many things not very well as opposed to really focusing on one thing and right. doing it incredibly productively. Jack of all trades, as they say, right? And master of none. Exactly. <laughs> what are the common misconceptions about ADHD then? Well, so one is just this idea of, well, you know, my kid can read their favorite book series for hours or my kid can play video games for hours. How can they possibly have ADHD? Look at how good they are at paying attention and staying on task. Actually, again, you know, as we alluded to earlier, individuals with ADHD can focus really well on activities that they enjoy, they find stimulating, that they're comfortable with. But again, you'll see that difficulty ratchet up significantly when they're faced with tasks that are perceived as boring, difficult, stressful, etc., Another is just this sort of unfortunate, oh, my kid's just lazy. You know, and we'll see some parents saying that um, in the course of evaluation, some teachers saying that who we speak with about students, which I think is just terribly unfortunate because in my opinion, kids naturally, they want to do well. They want to please adults. They want to earn praise. And so if they're behaving in ways that are not conducive to that, there is an underlying reason. They're not just purposefully deciding that they want to underachieve and annoy other people. It's really due to differences in brain development that make it harder to stay on task even when they're trying their best. I'd say another one is, again, alluding to parents, just this idea, oh, well, you know, it must be the fault of the parents. If only they were stricter with that child, then he or she would be doing better kind of thing. And the fact of the matter is there certainly are parenting strategies that are more effective and helpful in kids with ADHD. But, I mean, we need to remember that ADHD is a neurodevelopmental condition. It doesn't result from how a child is parented. Along the lines of the, you know, sort of neurological basis of ADHD, there's this idea that, oh, well, kids will just naturally outgrow ADHD and magically when they become adults, poof, the ADHD will be gone. And actually, 
what we see is that ADHD can persist into adulthood. The symptom presentation may change as people get older, but nonetheless, they may continue to present with an ADHD picture. A couple other things. I mean, one is, again, this idea that girls don't get ADHD, girls don't have it, which, you know, is we've seen um, debunked, thankfully, in recent times as, as sort of research has focused more on females and how the presentation can differ. And another one that bothers me is it's an understandable concern, of course, so I shouldn't say it bothers me. It's an understandable concern, but many people worry that kids who take ADHD medication are will be at higher risk for illicit drug use, when actually the flip side is what we see in research is that it's untreated teenagers with ADHD who are at higher risk for drug use and for the other sorts of dangerous behaviors that you might expect an, an impulsive teenager to get into, dangerous driving, etc. So those are some things that I think are very often misunderstood. And I can see why. I mean, some of them certainly sort of make sense on a superficial level. But when you know more about the diagnosis and what it really means, you can see that these things don't hold water. What do you think about the impulsiveness that's often attached to ADHD? Because I think this is something that's often overlooked is the rates of suicide amongst people who have often undiagnosed ADHD, because you can make these very, very rash decisions. So suicide attempts tend to be quite high amongst the ADHD population, I guess. Yeah, it's certainly the case that untreated people with ADHD are at higher risk as they get older for negative outcomes. Um, That could include mental health vulnerability, relationship problems, whether that be friendships, marriages, professional relationships. That includes employment outcomes, financial outcomes, certainly There's no reason to assume that someone with ADHD as a child will not go on to be an entirely successful adult, but just there is a higher risk when it's not diagnosed, when it's not properly treated, when there isn't appropriate awareness and support. Once diagnosed as a child, will you always have ADHD and carry it into adulthood? Or can you, with the right treatment, get it so that it's completely dormant and you're so-called recovered? Right. Well, so that's interesting because... A couple of things. One thing is that I'm sure that in the future, what we know now about how the brain works will seem primitive. That being said, what we know now about how the brain works is that the frontal lobe of the brain is associated with the development of attention and other executive functioning skills. And we know that the frontal lobe is developing well for our mid to late 20s. So we know the course of natural developmental maturation will help with some of the symptom picture. And as people get older with ADHD, very often, not always, but very often you will see them outgrow some of the more hyperactive impulsive elements that they may have shown when they were younger. And what you will, again, not always, but often see lingering are these more higher order executive functioning sort of difficulty sort of planning and staying organized and managing time and the work project is late and I can't find my papers and where did I leave the keys? And, oh, I thought we were meeting on Tuesday, not Wednesday, et cetera. Those sorts of things become more prominent typically over time. And then another interesting thing is that historically, the primary psychopharmacological treatment for ADHD, the stimulant medications such as Adderall, Ritalin, they were historically sort of seen as more of a Band-Aid. So in other words, they Someone took the medication in the morning. By the end of the day, the medication was splashed out of the system, and then you started with a fresh sort of blank slate the next day. But now what we're beginning to see in research is that there can actually be longer-term neurological changes 
for people who start taking ADHD medication in childhood. So when they look at the neurological functioning later on, some studies show that the brains of the people who are treated look more similar to the quote-unquote neurotypical brains as opposed to the brains of people who are untreated for ADHD. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the and partnership's belief in the power of and, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. What is the treatment for ADHD? Well, so I... Always exercise caution when it comes to medication use. You always just want to cross your T's and dot your I's and be sure that there's nothing else that needs to be dealt with first that might be causing the or contributing to the symptoms. So for example, sleep is a major issue that can, insufficiency can mimic ADHD symptoms. So you really need to be sure that the person is getting adequate sleep, which many people are not, unfortunately, you know, especially in adolescence. The recommended hours of sleep for elementary school age children, so for us that's age 6 to approximately 12, is 9 to 12 hours. And for teenagers, it's 8 to 10. And for grown-ups, you know, at least 7. It's a rare teenager who I've experienced, who, <laughs> who I've encountered at work, who is getting 8 to 10 hours of sleep. Just because the natural biological phenomenon of the circadian rhythm shifting back later so that they aren't tired until later in the evening. And then here, at least in the U.S., oftentimes school start times are quite early. And so teens may be, you know, not falling asleep until midnight or after. And then they have to get up at six to go to school kind of thing is something I hear a lot. And then even once they are in bed, many of them have, um, you know, they have their devices and screens in their rooms. And, you know, some friend is texting them at 2 a.m. with some sort of crisis. So even once they get to sleep, they may not be having good quality sleep. It may be interrupted. So people who are chronically sleep deprived can look very much like people who have ADHD. So that's something we need to be very attentive to. Because if you rush in to medicate the ADHD when actually the sleep is at the root of the problem, you you know, that might not be the best course of action. So once you've sorted out the sleep piece, then the next order of attack, in my opinion, is to move to medication. That's the approach that really has the most robust empirical support for actually having an effect. So stimulants, again, which I alluded to earlier, such as Ritalin, Adderall, there are different kinds, but those are the, some of the main ones people may have heard of. They are the best known and most widely used medication for treating ADHD. They've been used in kids for several decades. So again, very often parents are understandably reluctant to medicate children because they worry that there hasn't been enough research done on, because very often, you know, research is done on on medications in adults, and then it's sort of um, generalized to use in children. And so 
naturally many parents are reluctant to administer medication to their child that hasn't actually, you know, there hasn't been good testing on how it affects children in the long term. So stimulant medications have been around for a long time and have been used in children for a long time. So um, there is some greater degree of security there. And what we see in research is that 70 to 80% of kids with ADHD show improvement with the medication. It's quite a high success rate. And it's certainly, in my opinion, worth a try. Because again, the idea being that when a child or anyone, for that matter, takes a medication for anxiety or depression, very often these SSRIs like Prozac, Lexapro, et cetera, you know, it takes a couple of weeks at least to build up to a therapeutic level. Whereas with stimulant medication, it's literally in and out of the bloodstream in the course of a day. And so you'll know pretty quickly whether A, whether it's working, B, whether there are any negative side effects you want to be worried about. I'm not a medical doctor, so this is not my area of expertise per se, but certainly I encounter this sort of, I have this sort of conversation many times with clients. And so that's the feedback I give them that, um, you know, I think that that would be something, you know, worth going to speak to your pediatrician about and and doing a trial. It's not always a slam dunk on the first try, right? So you, you know, sometimes it takes a couple of different medications. But I tend to think if the symptoms are affecting the child's learning, if they're affecting the child's social functioning, which can often occur in ADHD, if they're affecting the child's emotional well-being, which can often occur in ADHD, then medication is an important intervention to try. You know, and then there are also parenting strategies that can be helpful, like we alluded to earlier. Parenting won't make or break ADHD, but there are certainly strategies that can help insofar as possible setting up a structured and predictable routine. You know, you can set up a visual schedule. Uh, here's what we're doing, bang, 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 throughout the course of the day. Checklist for kids. Here's your morning routine or your bedtime routine checklist just the steps that the child needs to take throughout the course of daily routines, which can be difficult because of ADHD to navigate. It can be helpful to reduce distractions, for example, when they're doing homework. And just to, you know, once you're conscious of the fact that your child has trouble focusing attention and inhibiting impulses, you know, you become much more self-aware when it comes to how often you're giving out complicated multi-step instructions, which can actually be much harder for the child to navigate than you would have thought based on their level of intellect and their age. Much better to break things down, again, to use visuals. And then I just always recommend that people keep an eye on the general health behaviors. We alluded to the sleep before, but also it's beneficial to ensure that the child is having sufficient exercise, you know, balanced diet, hydration, these sorts of things. And you alluded earlier to people who can actually get their ADHD really into remission in, in adulthood, sometimes via medication, which can alter the structure of the brain. But does therapy help or can therapy help? Because I imagine something maybe like dialectical behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy can sometimes help people manage their thoughts, in which case someone who has ADHD who's got an incredibly busy mind might find that helpful or is it more strategy that's really the thing that helps? I mean, honestly, I think, you know the saying, if you've met one person with X, then you've met one person with X. That's how it is with ADHD. If you met one person with ADHD, you've met one person with ADHD. It's mm. very different in different people. So again, we know we have this good outcome data for the stimulant medication in terms of the efficacy. Therapy may or may not be helpful. It really depends on the kid. It really depends on the family. A lot of times, I think the main benefit is for helping parents in terms of psychoeducation around what ADHD means and support with implementing and maintaining parenting strategies as opposed to working one-on-one with the child themselves. Because again, if we think of the child as having 
there's a neurological reason for the difficulties and it's not a it's not as much a mind over matter type scenario while i will teach you the strategy and you will successfully implement it and we will all move on happily together certainly children can benefit from learning certain strategies and also therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy can be excellent for any sort of accompanying anxiety the child may experience which is very common in kids with adhd I wouldn't expect therapy for a child in and of itself to be sufficient. But again, you know, people certainly are welcome to try whatever they feel comfortable with, right? So some people aren't comfortable moving to medication straight away. And so if it makes them feel more comfortable and secure to try therapy first, and if the child is in no immediate sort of significant risk, then that is certainly a good option to consider. Do you find that there's comorbidity as is common with ADHD? And if so, what comorbidities are the most common that you see? When I diagnose a child with ADHD, I always, I mean, we do this anyway as part of our evaluation, but I always want to keep an extra careful eye on how they're progressing academically because we know that students with ADHD are at higher risk for learning disorders. You know, areas where you will often, you know, if you get into the weeds of academics, areas where you often see difficulty are students with ADHD are at higher risk for sort of inattentive, impulsive mistakes, careless mistakes, which can affect them as they're navigating a multi-step math computation, learning spelling rules, learning math facts, math facts being your, you know, two plus two is four, three minus one is two, just your snappy, snappy, snappy capacity to automatize those sorts of basic facts that assist you when you're, you're doing a math computation. Also, oftentimes with ADHD, you'll see it affect academic fluency. So they fluency is the combination of accuracy and speed. So again, if you think of someone who is maybe zoning in and out with their attention and maybe is making impulsive mistakes, that will affect this, their output speed. So sometimes kids with ADHD may need uh, you know extra time to complete tasks. Or on the flip side, they may rush through and make lots of mistakes and need to be encouraged to go back and edit and check their work. And also, you know... ADHD tends to be accompanied by higher order executive functioning issues that affect a person's capacity to plan their approach to a task, to organize, not just their belongings, but also, again, their approach. So say you're writing a paragraph or an essay and you have a certain structure you're following, a sequence. ADHD affects other executive functions that we observe affected in ADHD or ability to think flexibly, you know, plan A isn't working, you should try plan B to get started efficiently on tasks as opposed to procrastinating, to manage time, to break things down. Oh, well, you know, I have this essay due in two weeks. I can either leave it to the last night and try to bang it all out, or I can break it into, well, so first I'll write my outline, and then I'll write my first paragraph, and then I'll edit that, and then, you know, so you can sort of break it into steps. And that's harder when you struggle with executive functioning. So higher order academic tasks like reading comprehension, written expression, there's a high demand for planning, organization, all the sorts of things we just talked about. So I definitely want to look carefully at the academic skills just to see that there isn't anything um, going on there that needs to be identified. And that's part of the reason, sidebar, that I think it's useful. You know, you certainly do not need a full evaluation to get diagnosed with ADHD. It can be done via questionnaire data, like we were saying earlier, but it helps to pick out other things that might be co-occurring that we that we need to address. The other things that, that um, you know, you often see difficulty, if you think about ADHD, like we were saying earlier, as a regulatory difficulty. So you're having difficulty regulating your attention, your impulses, your behavior, Oftentimes, that does not occur in a vacuum, and it's accompanied by broader self-regulatory difficulties. So very often, individuals with ADHD use difficulty regulating emotions, 
So they may be more emotion sensitive, at higher risk for anxiety, depressed mood. So we certainly want to look at those sorts of pieces as well to be sure that we're leaving no stone unturned in case there's something that needs to be highlighted or that requires intervention. Those are the main things that I look at. Also, oftentimes you'll see um, some accompanying fine or gross motor vulnerabilities. Um, so that's something to keep an eye out for. So what are the prospects long-term for kids with ADHD? So there is no reason to assume that your child with ADHD won't meet their goals in life, won't be happy, fulfilled adults when it comes to relationships, profession, etc. I think what's important is that if there is an issue that is getting in their way, and this is regardless of whether it's ADHD, learning, emotional, whatever it is, we try to be as aware as possible to identify things as early as possible and to figure out the best ways to address them based on empirically supported strategies. As kids get older, we also want them to have awareness of what's going on. So along these lines, a colleague and I have written a children's book that's being published next fall for elementary school age kids that presents the diagnosis of ADHD in a child-friendly sort of manner and with the different sorts of presentations that it can take. Kids are very often very insightful and they understand that something is not quite right. Something isn't going as well as they would like. They aren't as able to do something as, you know, the partner sits next to them at school. It's harder for them, takes them longer, whatever it is. And it's important to put a name to that and explain it so that they don't make, so often kids are, they're so hard on themselves. They're so quick to make a negative self-attribution. Oh, I'm stupid or I'm not good enough or I'm whatever it is, insert negative comment, right? I would much, much, much prefer that they were able to say, well, I have ADHD and that means that it's harder for me to do X, Y, Z. And here are the things that my parents and my teacher and I can do to help with that. It's a much more adaptive way for a child to be thinking about themselves and you know, as we were saying, developing those strategies that they can use throughout their lives. So again, I mean, if you have someone who is undiagnosed and, um, you know, they're, they're struggling, they're not appropriately supported or treated, then yeah, you can certainly see negative outcomes as we alluded to previously, but there's no reason to assume that that will be the case if the grown-ups in their lives are sort of keeping an appropriate eye on things. And for parents who are suspicious that a child might have ADHD and are concerned and if they do have a child who's been diagnosed with ADHD and they're worried about their long-term prospects what are the strengths which I know are numerous for people who have ADHD? You know we've alluded to this whole idea of people with ADHD typically being really good at focusing on things that they enjoy that are within their sort of wheelhouse comfort zone etc. Those sorts of interests can develop into fantastic hobbies, passions that are carried throughout life. They can develop into careers. I mean, there are certainly kids who, you know, they were really, really, really into science and lo and behold, they ultimately go off and become scientists or, you know, all different sorts of stories you hear along those lines where someone turned what seemed like quite an intense interest when they were a child into, um, you know, a functional productive career. So that's certainly a strength in my opinion. And studies also suggest that people with ADHD tend to be more creative and just more able to access out-of-the-box type ideas because they tend to be a bit more unconventional and orthodox in their thinking, which, you know, as we know, can be a real boon as you're approaching school, work, etc. Often there's a higher willingness to take risks and a higher energy level. You know, so when you have a kid who is more willing to take risks and has a higher energy level, not all parents will think that that's a positive thing. But as people get older, these sorts of things can be very positive traits professionally and personally. 
kids with ADHD will unfortunately have experienced some setbacks and difficulties, probably, most likely at school. They may, there may have been social impacts. You know, if you're impulsive, sometimes that has a negative impact socially. And so, I mean, the silver lining there is that, you know, those sorts of setbacks and experiences can make them more empathic. It can make them more resilient. So in the long term, there can be some real positive impacts. And so those are the sorts of things I would think about. And, you know, again, no reason to assume that um, there will be negative outcomes. No reason to assume the person can't meet their goals and be successful in, in the important aspects of their life. It's just important to be aware you know, to have a good understanding of your child's strengths and weaknesses and to sort of help guide them, help them navigate the areas of relative weakness and develop strategies that help them, again, can be lifelong. Well, it's been so interesting talking to you, Katia. I think lots of parents especially will find this conversation incredibly illuminating and it just does shed light on the variety of and the wide presentation of ADHD and, and how it can show up in so many different ways. And I think particularly the difference between boys and girls, which is often something that's overlooked. And I think, and again, girls who tend to ruminate and, and look more inwardly and who are the daydreaming types, as you said, to begin with, it's very hard to, as it were, diagnose them with something. But I think hopefully this will help to educate people more. And yeah, I wish you the best of luck with your book, which I think sounds absolutely fascinating. That's kind. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking about this. In case you couldn't tell, I think this is a really interesting topic, so I always enjoy talking about it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.